What would you like to be known as? How about a refrigerator? In fact, I'll be a little more specific. How about the refrigerator? Now, I was hoping that a couple people would be here today to help me with that, because if you know anything about me, I don't know sports. But I remember that there was a man known as the refrigerator. I don't know what team he played for or what his name was. The Bears, okay. And how did he get that name or that title? Well, he probably was about the size of a refrigerator and about as hard to move. Well, what about the Force? You can't go wrong with a Star Wars illustration. Let the Force be with you. Just be known by that. Or it comes down to one thing, how about just be the man? And you can be the man whatever that might be. The title might be fishing. You might be the person that puts more fish in that boat or on the ice or in a frying pan than anybody else that anybody knows. And if you want to know something about fishing, you go see the man. Because he will be able to tell you how to do it. Well, that's what we've been doing lately. And I don't make fun or look lightly at what God has said that he is in the series of I Am. He specifically has called out things that he is and that we are trying to understand and draw closer to with looking at them. When Pastor John first told me that we were going to think about doing this uh, message series, he thought, what do you think about the idea? My first thought was, I didn't say it to him, but I hate to see us interrupt the series on the Bibles because I'm enjoying that so much, how he's going through and enlightening us on each book. But I have always been amazed by the categorization that God called himself the great I am. And that we were going to look at that. And that I was going to have the pleasure of being part of that. And that is what has brought us into this series. And the pastor has taken three weeks to go through those. This week, we want to be looking at another one. And God, in the form of Jesus Christ, says, I am the door. Today we're going to try and understand better what he is saying when he says, I am the door. Now before we get to our scripture, I have to let you know one thing. And if you want to, in the meantime, we're going to be looking at John chapter 10. The scripture that we are going to be using today is actually, um, has two I am's rolled in together. And it's going to be, it was probably one of the harder parts of preparing this message was separating out because uh, Pastor and I had talked about it, that he's going to have a follow-up message uh, after my message next week on the shepherd. And so some of the scripture references and what you hear today, you might be uh, hearing again. But I'm going to try to the best of my ability to uh, show you what God's word says about uh, Jesus calling himself the door. So now that I forgot my Bible and I have to go get it, I want you to look at chapter 10. And if you do not have a Bible with you, 
There is a Bible in the pew. And I read. Truly I say to you, who does, he who does not enter into the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of the strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So as Jesus said again to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, in the first part of this scripture, I have to say this is part of where it's overlapping, and I just want to take a, 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 a brief time of explaining what Jesus is talking about in the, the sheep pens. This would be something that would have been very well known at that time, and they would realize that basically there was two kinds of sheep pens. There was the kind where they would bring sheep together of different flocks and put them in one place, usually in the city at night, and they would be tended by other people. The other kind of sheep pen would probably be uh, what we would realize would have been um, what we hear of the shepherds taking care of on the night that the announcement that Jesus Christ was born, where a shepherd takes care of a flock. And that might only be as loose as to have some stones around a perimeter and have the shepherd himself being the door in front of it. And saying that, that gets us to the point of about uh, verse number six, where it said, when Jesus had used that, that example, they did not understand what he was saying. In fact, they said the figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 15. What we have and what Jesus has just used is a parable, even though John, in this specific instance, John in his writing doesn't call them parables. But we see in Matthew that they do, that he does, and he goes through the next two chapters and uses uh, parables to tell stories. But we see that the, the, the people that listened to these, this parable that John had just related did not understand it, and I want to tell you why. Verse 10. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, 
To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he who will have an abundance, but from the one who has not, even that he has, he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Here it comes. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's hearts has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they can have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, I would heal them. Jesus is telling them that it's a heart problem. If you choose not to understand, the truths will not be there. And Jesus had an audience that had some in it that did not want to hear I remember when I was, was taking classes for my apprenticeship. There was a group of gentlemen there, and we would have a class that, and I remember one of them was hydraulics. And we were trying to understand why tool and die makers would have to know anything about hydraulics. And some of the individuals who were in that class would say, I don't need to hear this, I don't need to learn it, and had shut their minds off and never put anything into the class. And they probably left and went away getting the minimum grade that they needed to pass the course to get credit for it, but probably learning or understanding nothing. But those of us that thought, here's an opportunity to learn something we haven't known before, were eager to understand and learn because somebody was sharing with us. This is what's going on in this parable and why Jesus says that he had an audience that was not understanding. So when we go to verse number 7 in, in John chapter 10, Jesus is going to be more specific and bring it right down to the bottom line. And he starts out. It says, Truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. The first thing that we have to see, many have been entrusted with gathering the sheep, but, have, but many have failed. The thieves and the robbers and killers are there among the sheep. The way I want to look at this is Jesus at this time is speaking to a group of individuals. He calls them the Jews. But we also see that the lack of those entrusted with the work of doing God's work was before Jesus, during Jesus' time, after, and including up until today. I want to go first to the time before Jesus. Ezekiel 34 we're going to be looking at chapter 34, verses 1 through 10. 
And I read in God's word. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, and the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep are scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on the every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, and none to search or to seek them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Jesus is telling us specifically in this time and through this prophet that those that were set up to take and be bringing Israel closer to him were not doing what they were supposed to be doing. It was for their own gain that they were watching over the sheep, actually devouring them, actually using them, and, and in that way, not doing and allowing God's work to be done in, them, done in them and being brought closer to God himself. If we take it a little bit farther in God's word and read in, in verse 22, it says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, I, the Lord, will be their God, and my shepherd David shall be the prince among them. I, the Lord, I have spoken. God has just said, I'm not going to leave it the way it is. I am intervening, and he is going to intervene very specifically. He says that he is going to send a leader, the leader, through David, Jesus Christ. Failure of man to do what is assigned to him to do. God says, I will intervene, will not leave it the way it is. Going back to our text in John. Present time. Jesus now is talking to the Jews. When I was looking at this scripture and studying for it, there was a discussion 
among commentators whether uh, chapter 9 and chapter 10 and the verses that were in there were actually in the right order. Or had they gotten shifted around? Had manuscripts maybe had two uh, pages uh, turned around because it didn't seem to flow right? I mean, this, this story in chapter 9, does it really go into to 10 where it's talking about being the door and being the sheep? Well, I believe in the sovereignty of God's word and that it has stood the test of time and is exactly the way that God wants us to have it. And when we look at it and understand the people that, that, are, that God is speaking to in verse, uh, I'm sorry, in chapter 9, we see that it's a continuation again of the failure of those that were entrusted to watch over God's flock. And I want to look at exactly at chapter 9. Reading from God's word. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the work, works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Sound familiar? Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but it looks like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He says, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now here's the trouble starting right here, folks. When you see the Pharisees mentioned. Now it was a Sabbath day. That doesn't sound like it's going to go well either. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, meaning the blind man, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Now that's the Reader's Digest version. There's a man of few words. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Remember what we heard before about the, the Pharisees and working on the Sabbath? They were rule followers. And here already, this Jesus has broken a rule. He worked on the Sabbath because he healed this man. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes and he said, 
he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered, You know that this is our son, then he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know how, who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was put out of the, tent, put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. We see right there that the people that were supposed to be leading the, the Jews and bringing them closer to God, the Pharisees themselves were only interested in the rules and following the law and could not see who Jesus truly was. That he was the one that was the door. He was the one that was going to lead them. It goes on to say in the rest of the scripture that finally, when God, the form of Jesus, came before this man and said, do you believe that I'm the son of man? He said, I believe. Failure again by those that were supposed to be watching over the sheep. God intervening in the form of Jesus Christ and saying, but I am the one. I will take charge. After Jesus and up until this time, I would like to use as an example Revelation chapter 2. If you're familiar with Revelation chapter 2, it's the beginning of a look at seven different churches. Jesus was speaking to John himself in a vision and saying, giving a synopsis of different churches. And in verse 12, he says, And the angel of the church of Pergamum wrote, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. This is a church that was in the midst of where Satan is, but they were still followers to the point that it was so evil around there that they were killing the faithful. But there's a problem. Listen to what Jesus says. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who brought Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sanctified to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who, have, who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
even in the midst of a congregation that was strong in the Lord, they were allowing false prophets to come in among them, perverting the word of God, straying, bringing people away from where they should be, allowing those that had been in other religions and in other sects to bring part of what they knew in among the church to the point where it was leading people away. Does that sound familiar? Well, I think so, because I think in our small groups this year, we, we took on the uh, task of studying and reading the truth wars, how today so many times the truth is so clouded up by things around us that we don't understand what it might be. We as individuals, we as a congregation, we as leaders in a congregation, whatever that might be, we as a church in general can no longer allow anything less than the truth of God's word to be spoken. Because when it is, when we allow that, we are part of those that are leading God's people, God's sheep away. We cannot allow it. It comes down to one thing. It sounds like and is a dereliction of duty. Now, if you don't understand or really are familiar with that term, it's more of a military term. Dereliction of duty means that if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, if you're not watching out for that person that's next to you and making sure that everything that he needs and has and that he's safe, He's going to die. It's not just a job. It's that you have to be able to function because the person next to you is relying on you for your life and vice versa. Folks, if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing as Christians, wherever we are, whatever our function is in the church, people are going to die. And they're going to die forever. They're going to die the eternal death because they're not going to know the truth of who God is. I go back to God's word in chapter 10. But before I do that, I want to mention one other thing that I just read. The failures of man, again, are interceded by what Jesus said. He said, if you do not do what you are supposed to be doing, my word, I, will intervene. Again, it comes back to the one and only person that draws and brings and is the door to heaven and to the gates of the communion of God, and that is Jesus Christ himself. Looking back at chapter, chapter 10, the next thing that we, that we have to see is God Almighty, through the de redeeming work of Jesus Christ, assembles sustains and saves his people, that is, his church. We have seen where others were given the task of bringing God's people together, but they were no more than thieves, robbers, and killers. And we have seen how every time Jesus has intervened and has said, I will do it. I am the one. 
But the world doesn't think that way. What the world wants us to see is there are many ways to God. There are many religions, and we're all striving for the same thing. In fact, some might even say we, we don't even need to get there because we're our own gods. That is what the world thinks of religion. That is the view of religion. I want to read to you specifically what a commentator said about that. It would make little difference to most of the world's religions if their founder were someone else, or even if they had no founder at all. For essentially, they are collections of spiritual truths or claims to have truth and methods, and all of which could exist without their founder. They needed someone to discover them, of course. But the point is that anyone could have discovered them and that once they were discovered, they existed in their own right, much like scientific propositions. Besides, if they became lost, they could be discovered. This is the nature of the world's religions. Christianity is not in this category nor is Jesus like these other religious figures. Jesus, Jesus did not merely claim to know the truth. He said that he is the truth. He did not merely show the way to God. He said that he is the way to God. Therefore, within Christianity, there is no Christ, there is no way to God, no truth about God, and no uh, validity. Jesus didn't claim to be the door Jesus said he was the door. How? By his redeeming work. Jesus Christ is the door to our salvation by what he has done. God himself, incarnate in man, who came to this earth to lead a perfect life, who gave his life, so that others might live and have his righteousness. The only way of being able to bring us back in a right relationship with God the Father. That is the redeeming work of Jesus himself. One commentator writes, John Calvin wisely counsels against trying to tie the metaphor down too tightly. Now he's quoting John Calvin. Let us be content with the general view that Christ likens the church to a sheepfold in which God assembles his people and compares himself to the door since he is the only entrance to the church. Jesus is that entrance to the, to the church. That entrance is a door. What does that door look like? That's what the door looks like. It's the cross of Christ. Imagine if you would. Not in the sense of Hollywood films or trick photography, but imagine walking toward the door of the cross. As you get closer, you understand that you still have your sin, that you're still the same. Something is drawing you up to that cross. And on the outside of it, you see written, whoever will may come. 
and you pass through that door that is the cross. And as you come through, you realize that the sin that was part of you has fallen off. It is no longer part of you. It has been removed by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ himself. And as you pass through, you look back and it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That's what God has done through Jesus. Jesus is saying, I am that door. The work that I have done in the cross is what allows you to come to me. Now what we see is the church of God has been assembled. Our scripture is very specific that God brings us together through his work, but he doesn't leave us just there. He also sustains his, his sheep. Sustaining is probably maybe some of the most important part. When we come together, it isn't just only to worship and honor and praise God. Very important. And it's one of the things that we enjoy the most about coming together. But if we're not lifting each other up, if we're not strengthening each other, we're allowing ourselves to be susceptible to the thieves and robbers and the killers. That's how God helps to sustain his church, what it calls bringing us into the pasture, going in and going, coming out, being confident to know that we can stand in an evil world because God Jesus Christ is giving us that strength. That illustration that I used before about that, that, that pen that might be nothing more than a, a bunch of rocks with the shepherd laying in front of it to hold us in, it isn't the height of that wall that gives us any security. It's the proximity to the shepherd himself that gives us our strength and our ability to withstand the temptations of this world. God tells us in his word things like, I will never leave you or forsake you. I am with you to the end of the age. We have his word that draws us ever closer to him. He sustains us. And last, God's word said that he saves us. We have to understand that we are not only saved from something, but we're saved to something. What we were saved from is who we used to be. Sinners die, dying in our own sins. Unable to remove that sin from us. The work of the cross has taken that sin away from us. We are saved from that. We are saved to life. And life more abundantly is the way that the scripture puts it. And only one place does that come in, by passing through the door, the door which is Jesus Christ. The abundant life, it's one of the things that is when you're looking at a message or you're, when you're teaching Sunday school, you get a truth that maybe you have been overlooking too much in your own life. And it's a reality when you say, the abundant life isn't this 60 years this 70 years, this 80 years that I have on this, in this world. All too easy, we think this is the main part of who and what we are. This is but a vapor. 
Folks, we, we were made at a, to be in a time and a fellowship with Christ forever, to walk with him. But through sin, we were separated. So that separation is going to last us 60 or 70 or 80 years in this life. But we're going to be in an eternity someplace. When we've trusted the cross, we're going to be in an eternity in his presence in front of the great I am by the saving work of Jesus Christ. That's the abundant life. I don't say that in this life, because we've turned our hearts over to God, that he isn't going to be able to do marvelous things or give us blessings that just stagger our minds. That can happen. But even in the best of churches, like we saw in Revelation, even in the best of times, when we are so close to God and worshiping and honoring and praising him, there are those that will still have to give up their life for Jesus Christ. That doesn't sound like an abundant life. It sounds like a sacrificial life. It sounds like a life that should point others to what Christ has done in our lives. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all, they're all there is in this life. We praise God this morning that the great I am has revealed himself to us not in some abstract ideas, but in the truth of his word. He is the door, the life, the abundant life. His redeeming work on the cross allows each believer entrance into his kingdom of glory through grace and grace alone, with no merit on our part. No power or person or force in this universe can separate us from the love of God. Today we give praise and honor and glory to the great I am for he is and was and always will be the one that has been the door. Let's pray.